Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Unhedged. I'm your host, Frank Trois, and I'm really looking forward to this week's broadcast. Each week, we try to present you with the most diverse group of panelists and speakers that one can find anywhere. These range from theologians to portfolio managers, hedge fund managers, politicians, you name it. If they've written a book, we're going to have them on air talking about it. And by the way, we're not going to follow a scripted, organized discussion, but rather have a free-form discussion so that we can talk about the things that are top of mind, and more importantly, ask the questions that you would probably have asked yourself. Feel free to recommend the show to friends and colleagues, and with that, let's get on with this week's edition of Unhedged. Today's broadcast is brought to you today by Oracle. Oracle helps customers develop roadmaps, migrate to the cloud, and take advantage of emerging technologies from any point. These include new cloud deployments, on-prem environments, and hybrid implementations. Oracle's approach makes it easy for companies to get started in the cloud and even easier to expand as business grows. For more information, go to sohocap.com unhedged, and we can provide free cloud credits to our listeners. Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to Unhedged. Uh, I'm your host, Frank Trois, from Singapore this lovely morning with a slight monsoon storm outside. And today I am graced again with the pleasure of Mr. Douglas Borthwick. Doug, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So you sound, uh, even though you're telling me you're in a great mood, what, what, what are your thoughts about what's going on right now with China? I know you've been uh, fairly vocal that it, it seems that, that right now in terms of the U.S. and China that that they're fighting, but at the same time, there's almost a few nuclear options that they're not using. And uh, you've been inferring between the dollar and the payment system. I mean, what, what, what are your thoughts here about where, where these two guys are and how this thing's setting up for the G20? Wow, well, but there's, there's so much to talk about here. I think that obviously the media is concentrating right now on the trade war and it's not gonna happen because the US is gonna lose the U.S. is going to lose because prices are going to become more expensive at, uh, at Costco and elsewhere. And so Americans are going to turn around and say, forget it. You know, we're not going to support this trade war. And at the same time, China's on the tape saying, look, if you really want to go down the road of a trade war, then we'll stop exporting things to you that are important to you. Maybe Huawei is not important to you, but how about uh, rare earths? Mm -hmm. rare, rare earths are important to the U.S. because obviously they're used in missile manufacturing and uh, the defense uh community uses it quite a lot. Um, but at the same time, China's pitching this rare earths as being, you know, this is this is a nuclear option for them. They don't have to use, rare, they don't have to export rare earths to the United States. And they've also sort of pitched in the background as well, the thought that, you know, we as China don't have to buy U.S. treasuries. Maybe we could dump all U.S. treasuries. And that was certainly something that was thrown about in an academic journal in China. And, and I think that, you know, folks aren't really understanding that China is allowed to the U to use the U.S. dollar for all of its international um, trade at the U.S.'s express approval. And if the U.S. really wanted to shut down things with China, then they could turn around and say, you know what, you can't use uh, the U.S. dollar anymore for international transactions. Now, that's not a crazy thought either, given the U.S. has already told other countries, if you go around sanctions that we put with you for North Korea, and sanctions with Iran, then we will stop you from using the U.S. dollar. And the U.S. has already turned around to Europe 
and Europe set up a special purpose vehicle to allow them to trade with Iran without using the US dollar. And the US has turned around to Europe and said, you know what, this doesn't work for us. You better watch out. And if they're already, and if the US is telling Europe they better watch out, then I think that China would be the next on the horizon. So the real nuclear option that can be used by the US, and this is why I think the US will end up winning the, the, this trade war, is the US could turn around and say, look, you know what, China, you can't use the US dollar anymore for international trade transactions. That shuts down China automatically. Well, let, let me, let, let's jump on that for a second, because as you know, we have a few different listener types. And so I, I want now to to go to the folks that uh, might not understand all the mechanics, because you, you said a lot there, and, and I want to focus just on three, uh, but particularly your last point. So one was rare earths, two is Huawei, and three with, with the dollar uh, as the base currency for these transactions. Because what Maybe if you could just take a step back and and help our listeners understand what that means for the dollar in these transactions, because at the same time, you know, if you read the New York Post or the Daily News to the layman, they might look at this and say, oh, wait a minute, these countries are actually trying to move away from the dollar uh, as the reserve currency. So in a weird way, you know, are we shooting ourselves in the foot? What you're saying is counterintuitive. In fact, that the U.S. has an extraordinary amount of leverage here and can say, you know, we're not going to give you the dollars in order or let you use the dollar for this. So can you maybe walk our listeners through that so they just understand why that is a strong point, whereas I think a fair number of them might actually think that that's a weakness in, in not understanding it? Certainly. So I guess let's talk about the U.S. and their view towards the dollar right now, or at least this administration. So this administration has a view today that they'd like to see a weaker dollar. Trump certainly has talked about this. In fact, last week he talked about how the euro seems to be undervalued relative to where it should be in the market. Others came out and said, well, the IMF believes that the euro is actually 20% undervalued. So Trump's taking the, the, these sort of thoughts and saying, the dollar is very well overvalued. A cheaper dollar, a weaker dollar would be good for the US's interest. Now, one problem the US has had over the last 20, 30 years is they've gone out with a mantra of a strong dollars in U.S. interest. The strong dollar that the U.S. has pushed over this time has resulted in many countries buying U.S. treasuries, but they haven't been buying and starting up manufacturing plants in the U.S. because labor's become too expensive in the U.S. because of the strength of the U.S. dollar. And so the U.S. is at this point now, they're, they're like, you know what, we'd like a weaker dollar. How do we get there? Well, one way to get there is to stop the U.S. dollar from being used as the medium of exchange for most international trade and from being the reserve currency of choice in the market. Now, how do you do that? Well, already we've, we've, we've sort of weaponized the SWIFT payment system. The SWIFT payment system is set up to allow folks to settle U.S. dollars globally uh, for, for their trade transactions. And when the U.S. came out with... Uh, with, with restrictions for, for uh, North Korea, they said, look, if you go around these restrictions, we will shut you off from SWIFT and not allowing, and then that will then stop you from settling in US dollars. This is the first time the US threatened to weaponize the US dollar. Since then, China, Russia, and Europe have all set up special purpose vehicles with the express aim of settling trade, not in US dollars, but in their local currency in order to get around these US sanctions. Because the U.S. is sort of out there in the market right now with a very, very big stick telling folks, listen, if you don't go with what we believe in, then we're going to come down with a hammer. 
Now, what, like, I'll, and I'll give you three examples. One would be Turkey came out and said, you know what, we're not going to use U.S. weapons manufacturers. Uh, we're going to end up using Russia's uh, missile system. Yeah, that, that was a big, big. That was a big, big no-no to the U.S. Um, and then in, uh, in in Germany, they came out and said, well, we're not going to take the F-35. We're going to end up using uh, a, a French version. Again, this is like a blow to the U.S. You know, if, if folks are out there and they're they're part of NATO, they should be buying U.S. products. If you don't buy U.S. products, that's a problem, and we're going to have a problem with you. In technology, the same thing. The U.S. came out and said, look, we'd prefer if our allies don't use Huawei. Well, why is Huawei uh, important? Well, it's a large Chinese company that the U.S. is currently accusing of spying on uh, on the U.S. consumer. And so on the back of that, the U.S. has to come out and said, look, if you're going to use Huawei, we don't want to deal with you because we don't think that's going to work with our systems. And we won't be able to share our information with you. You won't be able to work with the NSA. You know, there's like all sorts of talk like this right now. And then the third point is obviously in payment on the payment system. If you're going to go around our sanctions and if you're going to stop using the U.S. dollar, that could be a problem for us. And so the U.S. is trying to find a way right now to do a number of things. One, they want to get China to come back to the to the uh, the meeting place and to agree in a trade deal. Two, they're trying to get the U.S. dollar. They're in, in fact, they're encouraging that the U.S. dollar becomes less of the major currency for trade internationally. And that's not a negative thing for the U.S. dollar. I think it's actually it's a positive thing for the U.S. economy. It's a negative thing for the U.S. dollar in terms of where the U.S. dollar is going to go. But if the U.S. dollar was to weaken somewhat from where it is right now, that would certainly spur growth in the U.S. and would make the S&P rally considerably. I think they say that you know, for every 5% the U.S. dollar goes down, the S&P earnings go up by, uh, I think it's 2.5%. And so if you want to keep the stock market rally going, it's not going to continue if the U.S. dollar starts to strengthen from here. It's going to continue if it starts to weaken. Now, let's just all take a step back from this as well and, and just realize where we are in the election cycle in the U.S. Well, in 2020, Trump's hoping to get reelected. How does he get reelected? Well, there's two things. One, he could force the Fed into cutting rates aggressively. It's already priced in about 100 basis points over the next year. There's expectations that Wednesday they could cut 25 or, or, or 50 basis points. That's going to help the economy stabilize somewhat and it's going to help the stock market go bid. The other thing he can do is he could turn around and after the Fed has done all these rate cuts, turn around and sign a watered down deal with China. But the market would react positively to that and you'd see a nice bid up in the stock market as well. So all of this could be a 2020 play in terms of timing by Trump. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see. You know, if we if we look at the election part of that, I, I think that one of the um, um, one of the interesting things around that is is the the concern by by some in the market that he that Trump may in fact do a deal that's not a good deal for the sake of just saying that a deal was done ahead of the election and and you know do you, and, and on the other end there are folks and I'm I'm just giving you the perspective from uh, out here in Southeast Asia there are other folks that feel that you know despite some of the emotional drama coming out of DC that that in fact this discussion regarding trade with China is is the rational, is maybe the only rational discussion that that's occurring as a function of this administration, where business leaders and 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 uh, uh, those in the political arenas are saying that that this is a real issue and Washington actually is handling this uh, correctly. So, what, what what's your thought here? Is it, are we looking at a classical rational actor? 
where where to your point, you know, and the executive office is exercising the levers that it has, and or do you see a capitulation trade at some point where he says, you know what, the heck with it, even though we did have him over a wheelbarrow, and if I waited six more months, I could get the real deal that I wanted. Do you see him just caving to political pressure to to secure twenty twenty for himself? Well, I, I think if he wanted to cave to political pressure, he'd have signed the deal that the Chinese came back with in the last minute on, on this this deal. If you remember, China and the U.S. had a deal; there was an agreement on it, and then in the last minute, China watered down the deal, sent it back to the U.S., and took out a lot of the uh, the restrictions on the uh, taking of, uh, of uh, technology. Um, and and Trump decided I mean, he wasn't going to sign from this; he's going to walk away from it now. That's a political move there as well, and that the market didn't expect him to turn around from it because he'd already turned away from the North Korea deal, which is also a big deal in the markets. So there's two deals now that Trump has turned away from that look like they'd be watered down in some way. Now you can see that as being strength, or you could see it as as him failing to get the deal that he wants. But my view is that this is a strength. This is something that he wasn't willing to write some to sign a deal just for the sake of it, just to get a couple of points in the opinion polls, just to get the stock market up. I think that you know he's taking the hard way, which is you know having having a hard uh, pushback, and uh, I think we'll see fruit from that. I think that the Chinese have to have to understand that, and have to realize. Let's say, or let's change that word, realize rather than understand, that for the last twenty years they have been allowed to really become part of the U.S. economy, such that the U.S. consumer is very, very dependent on China. And I think that you know we have to be wary of that, or certainly the U.S. has to be wary of that. Just just on a, on a, on a national defense type view. I mean, after all, let's look at how the U.S. is looking at uh, Germany and Europe right now with Nord Stream 2. Nord Stream 2, as I'm sure you're aware, is a pipeline that comes from Russia, where Russia supplies energy needs to Europe. And the U.S. has turned around and said, you know what, we don't think that's really smart when it comes down to taking your energy needs from someone that could be your competitor. Should there be, you know, a world disagreement going forward? And, uh, and so the U.S. is taking the same view with China in that maybe it's not smart that we're relying upon China for rare earths, relying upon China for pretty much most consumer goods in the United States. And we've pretty much taken all of the jobs that we had in the U.S. in the last 20 years and we've exported them to China. Does that make the U.S. more stable or less stable? I think that Trump's arguing this makes the U.S. less stable. Let's bring some jobs back home to the U.S. Let's have more folks working in, in middle America. And these are the guys that voted for Trump. And uh, I think that that's his view. And I think that in the end, he'll end up with a deal that gives him that. Yeah. And to your point, it was interesting, even on uh, Foxconn in Taiwan, you know, I think folks were were surprised when when they announced, you know, that, that they could, with enough notice, actually shift a, a significant portion of their supply chain out of China very, very quickly. And, and uh, I think ironically, if I remember correctly, they were saying how uh, they could they could move it to Wisconsin uh, if, if push came to shove. The, the other the other interesting thing here is is um, uh, as, as we look at this, you know, what what one of the most interesting data points that I've that I've been hearing, and, and again, I'm not in a position to to name names, so that this has been on background and off the record. But the despite putting on a good game face, um, what we are hearing privately is that the the Chinese leadership actually is really concerned now about the path and direction. Uh, that the talks have taken, and and I think it's 
been interesting when this first occurred to one see the the um, initial reaction maybe on the majority of Americans of concern in terms of what this would mean to the market. Uh, two, the fact that that despite putting on a strong game face, that the the Chinese actually are very very worried about about where this is, and and you know and I and, and you know do you do you do you envision that that the Chinese could continue to do this on their own, or or is the could we also see a I don't want to say capitulation trade, but could we also see them reach a point where they just say okay enough's enough we're we're you know, we're, 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 and it almost seems in a weird way, Doug, like they just need to put the language back in the agreement that was pulled. You know, it seems like we had an agreement uh, a couple of months ago. It was that just that at the last moment that language changed. So it's almost like if we could go back to that, you know, we're done. Uh, but well, do you I, th- th- I think, go ahead. I think China has to worry about saving face at, at, at this, at this juncture. And, you know, in the meantime, the U.S. has to do a, a better job, I think, in selling to the American people why we need to have this trade deal with China. And, you know, the, the difference in a trade war and an actual war is significant. In an actual war, we send people overseas, many people die, and it costs trillions of dollars. With the trade war, there's a tax on goods by the tariffs, and individuals have to pay out of their pocket towards that, but you know, no one's losing their life. And the cost of this, these tariffs are, are minim- de minimis, uh, you know, as opposed to a real war. And so, you know, it's it sort of, it, it affects the, the, the U.S. consumer in the pocketbook, a trade deal, but it doesn't affect them going forward in terms of we have to do huge debt deals to try to uh, pay for something that we can't afford, which a real war is. Um, and I think that the American consumer has a, has a choice. They can buy Chinese or they could buy American. And so I, I see these tariffs for the U.S. consumer as being Look, you know, I can buy that Chinese good, or if I paid a little bit more, maybe I could buy a good that was made in America. And this is something that was done in the UK in the 70s. Buy British was a very, very big thing when they tried to get manufacturing going back in Britain. If you want to get manufacturing in the US, then US can move towards this buy British type, uh, buy, buy American, and we could see where that goes. And China certainly goes with the buy Chinese, you know, back and forth in their, in their country too. Now, China is sitting there and, and, they're, they're trying to look powerful. They're trying to look strong. They're trying to push, well, we've got something you want, rare earths. Uh, we want Huawei out there in Europe, and they're, they're pushing uh, with their PR guys to, to make sure that, that that doesn't fall through. But they just had a big misstep, and that was Hong Kong. Yeah. So Hong Kong, you had all of the, the uh, very, very peaceful demonstrations that, that, made, uh, you know, that, that made the news in a big way because this is someone standing up to Goliath. This was David standing up to Goliath. And David won, or has won so far. And I think that China then has to take a step back from that and say, you know what, we don't win every, we don't win everything. And I think that China will be weakened somewhat going into the G20 meetings, and that weakness is going to have to need to have some sort of face saving. They'll need to win something from the U.S., but I don't know what that is yet, and I and I, I haven't figured it out. But in my mind, it's quite clear that the U.S. Will win this trade war because we have the ultimate button and that is we can turn around and say you can't use the US dollar. Interesting. You know and and, and it was it was fascinating too. I was talking to a, I was at a conference last week and I was talking to a a policy wonk which would probably be the most polite way that I could refer to him as and he kept making these comparisons to the Cold War and the US versus Russia and that's the world we're in with China. But to your point 
I, I, I was like, you know, you got to understand something with Russia. We didn't trade with them. <laughs> we had sanctions on Russia. You know, we were doing everything we could during the Cold War to make sure that they weren't part of the economic system. Whereas to, to your earlier point, you know, we're unbelievably interconnected with, with the Chinese in terms of our debt, supply chains. I mean, it's, it's not an easy, you know, the relationship is complicated, but at the same time, it's working. And, and, uh, uh, you know, let's use that as a, an interesting way to dovetail to Hong Kong. And, and I, I, I know I can provide perspective from out here, but, but what, what do you, what's the perspective on this back in the States? How, how is the average American looking at what's happened in Hong Kong? Well, I think that the average American, because we also had the anniversary of Tiananmen Square, I think the average American was thinking this would be something quite similar um, because you had Tiananmen Square uh, activities and, and folks talking about that and flashbacks going back to that, a lot of discussion in, in the U.S. news, while at the same time the Hong Kong uh, demonstrations were going through. And folks were talking about, I think, about how this is, you know, this is terrible for China, it's terrible for Hong Kong, Yet they were forgetting that Paris has seen exactly the same thing, except on a violent nature, every Saturday. Yeah, going through the streets yeah. of Paris. So, you know, I think when 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 the media focuses on something, it becomes really important and very very scary. But when it's put into perspective, you kind of realize that you know what, it, it really isn't that big of a deal. Now, this is a huge deal for people in Hong Kong, but I don't think it was a big deal otherwise. And, and, and in terms of focus, what, what, what I'd like to um, segue to, because it, it, it is interesting to see that we're all focused on the trade talks. We're, we're obviously talking about Asia, which, is, um, which seems to be dominating the media headlines to date. But, but the reality is there, there's a pretty serious uh, flashpoint occurring right now in the Middle East. And do, do, do the Americans understand the, the significance of, of the ratcheting up of this political pressure and and you know just just last night Iran uh, basically announced that they they're they're now going to violate a main provision of the nuclear agreement unless Europe gives them some relief on on the sanctions at the same time we're sending uh, technology to Saudi Arabia so that they can begin making uh, their own armaments um, uh, at scale uh, a, what, what do you think the average American is thinking about this? Because uh, it seems like the only thing in the states focus, folks are focused on is the in Israel the, you know, the community that they built called Trump Heights, and it seems like that got the press. But it doesn't seem like folks are really realizing how critical this situation is. Where we're out here, folks are looking at this and saying Saudi and Iran could could be at war very very quickly uh, based on how everything's setting up. Right and. And I think that the U.S. has sort of been battling with Europe in terms of the view on Iran. And the U.S. obviously moved out of the Iranian treaty. The Europe uh, stayed in it and you know, tried to make excuses for why Iran was still a good, a good player. And the U.S. has been trying to cajole Europe into joining them in, as a coalition in terms of you know, turning around and saying, actually, Iran is not following the right way. Um, over the weekend, obviously, there were a number of tankers that were hit with limpet mines, and uh, the U.S. came out with some very, very grainy pictures of photographs uh, showing and, and, and said this is the Iranians. And the, the allies of the U.S. and Europe turned around and said, no, no, these pictures, we can barely see anything. And then today, the U.S. came out with full-color, snappy photographs yeah. <laughs> in high definition and said, well, how about these? Yeah. And so, you know, by, by showing that to Europe, and, and showing that it was a Japanese tanker that was hit, 
the U.S. is essentially getting Europe behind them when it comes down to what's going on with Iran. And then with Iran going around and saying they're going to up their uranium to the point that goes over and above the treaty, then you know, Europe automatically has to side with the U.S. and say that Iran is broken with the treaty and the U.S. Get, has gotten what it wants. And so I think that the average Joe in America isn't watching Iran at all. I think it's very, very important, especially for oil. But you know, oil prices aren't really jumping on the back of this. They've been coming off. And so, you know, it's a story, but it's not a story that's really a headline story yet in the United States. It's something that I think we're all watching. People are going out and saying, oh, you should be, you know, buying dollars against the Saudi currency because that's going to start blowing out soon. And, but, you know, I've heard that for so long, for, for my entire career. I've heard the same thing about how Hong Kong dollars going to deval. None of these things ever happen, it seems. So I, I'm not, I'm, I, I, think that, I think that there's a growing flashpoint in the Middle East, but I don't think we're there yet. And do you, do you see the, the, you know, of late, the pictures of uh, Xi Jinping with Putin and them now saying that they're best of friends and exchanging birthday gifts? Do you, do you has, for lack of a better term, has U.S. aggression finally pushed these two strange bedfellows back in bed again? Or, or how, how genuine do you think that relation is between Putin and Xi versus is Xi Jinping just using this as a straw man you know, to, to, to the U.S. to say, look, don't push me too far because we, we always have this as a plan B? Well, right, yeah, but having Russia as a plan, B, saying you're giving up U.S. as a, as a partner and picking up uh, Russia instead, I mean, that that's... You're really going from the top of the heap to, to near the bottom of the heap. Right. Um, I, mean, I, I think like in terms of economic powerhouses. Right. Now, now in terms of you know, Russia and China have always sided with each other. You know, just go to the, the UN Security Council and you'll find that they, they side with each other a lot more than they'll side with the United States. And so there's nothing really new there. I think that what is new is that they're both trying to they're both working on uh, a payment system to rival the SWIFT system so that they can settle things in their own currencies. And by, by settle things in their own currencies, I'm talking about energy specifically. You know, both, both Russia and China have an interest in settling energy as in oil and commodities as in gold in the Chinese you know, yuan and in the, uh, the Russian ruble. And that would obviously take away some market share from the US dollar if they were to do that. And so I think that that's something to work on together. And uh, obviously, there's the Belt Road Initiative, which is also you know, something that will help you know, them work together as well. So I think that there's lots of ways they can work together. But you can't give up the U.S. as being your export market and, and, and use Russia as, a, as your substitute. Well, on that note, Mr. Borthwick, I think we covered uh, the world in, in uh, less than 30 minutes. So, so again, thank you very, very much for your time today. And, uh, and if you don't mind, I think we're going to need to pick your brains here. Uh, in the coming weeks. I don't see this as a quiet summer. I have a, my, my gut tells me between July and August, we'll probably have a, a few more headlines. That'll be fun. Thank you very much. Thanks, sir. Oh, no worries. And thank you again. And for our listeners, uh, thank you again for your time. And uh, we will have this up and uh, look for our next podcast next week. And Doug, again, thank you and have a great week. Thank you. Okay, see you.